0: Peter Stockland. Welcome to the Word Work Podcast, where we talk about words with people whose work is with words. Writers and teachers, journalists and activists, musicians and linguists, politicians and preachers, thinkers and talkers, and anyone else whose daily bread relies on the use, sometimes abuse, of words. My guest on this episode is Zolt Alapí an English literature teacher for many years at Marianopolis College and at Concordia University in Montreal, but also actively involved in the city's literary scene as a writer and as publisher of the micropress Siren Song Books. His first novel Landscape with the Fall of Icarus was released in summer 2020 by DC Books. He is currently working on a new collection of short stories. Zolt Welcome, and thanks so much for taking the time to chat.
1: Thank you very much for doing this and for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Um, And yes, uh, things have been delayed, including things like, uh, obviously, we were supposed to have a launch in May, which didn't happen because of COVID. And then we finally did have a virtual launch, which I think was, gosh, I can't even think of it. I think it was October 25th, if I'm not mistaken.
0: I was uh, really impressed with the number of people who, uh, who turned out for that. It was good. I mean, I, I couldn't help thinking both you and I have been to uh, uh, innumerable book launches over the years, and you had a lot more than, than often show up in, in any bookstores. So uh, I guess the, uh, the, the convenience of it or just the appeal of it was, was there. So. It was certainly it was certainly
1: very gratifying to see so many people who came, and people from all over the place. Some from the United States, even a couple from Europe. Uh, I obviously some of them were friends, but many people I didn't know. So that was gratifying for yeah. sure.
0: So, so I wanted to just start. Uh, you and I both know. I from the journalism side, certainly you from the the uh, the teaching side, and and your literary life that. Um, words are not often that valued these days, are they? Any any word will do as long as it sounds good. <laughs> yes, so, that's right. As long as it's a sound bite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, so really, that's what um, I, I want to try to just you know promote the idea that um, language actually does matter and how no, we that's use great. words and, and what and what we use them for, and even just looking at the way the way we use words. So, so that's uh, that's kind of the the big idea of it. Building off that, I, I wanted to start just by talking with uh, about landscape, uh, mm-hmm. with the fall of Icarus, and then a little bit about about your own background, and then uh, some. Uh, you, I know you mentioned on the the um, at the Zoom uh, book launch that you have a, a you're working on a collection of short stories. And while I don't want to jinx that, I'd like to sort of look ahead and see what's, uh, what's coming there too. So I just I wanted to start just by actually. The, the second paragraph in, in chapter one of the Landscape with the Fall of Icarus, the, the main character, Stephen, is standing in front of, standing in the Bruegel room at a, at a museum in Vienna, and he's looking at the, the Tower of Babel, Bruegel's Tower of Babel, but he's actually thinking about another um, Bruegel painting yes. and how the, the figures in the, in the painting are oblivious to the fact that, that Icarus is, is plunging into the sea, Yes. And uh, I, this the second paragraph in the book, so goes the, the allegory, though perhaps Bruegel meant it differently, thinking more on the grand scale of human suffering. But as I remembered that painting, I thought of all the poignancy of the artistic imagination falling unnoticed, disappearing, swallowed by the waves. It, it's not exactly a ringing call for that for the future of novel writing or writing <laughs> writing is it i mean here's this character whose immediate thought is the the total futility of of what it is that he's actually engaged in
1: yes yes uh, that's interesting you you picked up on that because that was an in- entirely my intent. Um, And the character as he unfolds in the course of the novel is someone who has had an abiding love of literature and that love of literature has become almost a dependence on literature in his case, where he begins to see the world exclusively through the books that he's read. And so in his He he ends up uh, trying to kill himself and as he's sort of coming back to life and coming back to some kind of cognizance of uh, of his spiritual status, he goes through a dark night of the soul and wonders if all of this has been really futile. And um, as the story unfolds, he has to come to some kind of reckoning about this. But certainly as it begins, it's the, the poignancy, as you said, of artistic imagination falling. And so precisely what you said before, it seems like we don't really care so much about it as a society and as a culture. And I think we're the poorer for it as a result.
0: Yeah, his uh, psychiatrist, Dr. Reinblatt, actually tells him that his bookish knowledge, that he uses his bookish knowledge to erect a barrier between uh, himself and his immediate reality. Uh, Would you agree that by the end of the the novel, or maybe not the end, but but sort of the three-quarter point of the Mm novel, Stephen is actually... Come to to pretty much accept that, that 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 there's a truth to that because he, as you say, he divests himself of of his entire library, which is which has been the core of his life. Does he agree with Dr. Reinblatt or does he, is it still qualified in his mind? I think,
1: you know, he comes to accept it somewhat, but I think it's still ultimately qualified. And um, there's, uh, after he divests himself of all of his books, he still can't get all these voices and words out of his mind because they've informed him all of his life. And uh, I think there's a part which is highly ironic, which is very near the end. When he goes into a bookstore and picks up a copy of the, I think it's the collected works of Borges, uh, the collected prose of Borges, and he realizes that this is the very volume <laughs> that he sold to the bookstore, and so on. <laughs> and, and, and that to me is ultimately ironic because it's like he can't escape it. And then he reads that passage from Borges about words, words, words. This was the legacy that was less left to him and so on. And it's an inevitable legacy for anyone who loves literature and uh, damned if you do and damned if you don't almost. But in Stevens' case, I think he's sensing there's a truth to what Dr. Reinblatt says, and therefore he has to come back to life in a kind of uh, or come back to the world in an active way, which is his act of, uh, you know, making love to uh, to Catherine, who's uh, uh, who's dying of cancer. And then at the very end of the book, he actually starts writing again. And it's something that's inevitable. Like you have to articulate your life experiences. You have nothing else really as a writer and oftentimes as a human being.
0: Hmm. I wondered, If you'd agree, I, I, I certainly got the sense that you, you mentioned the, the, the ironic voice in the in the novel. But it, I mean, there's a sense that it, at least part of it, is very much a, a kicking against the prick. Great lines, trying to. Uh, instill order in the imagination, but also, I guess my sense was neither literary pretension nor Freudianism come off particularly well, do they? <laughs> They're pretty much savaged, I think, in the novel. Would well, you agree with that? Yes, I, I
1: think I think I intend to, intended that fully, but there's also. Even that savaging is a little bit ironic because as much as Stephen wants to savage it and distance himself from it, he can't ever fully do that. Because it's sort of like almost a curse of being a man of letters. Uh, it's become your entire world and your definition of the world. And similarly, in the case with Dr. Reinblatt, I mean, Dr. Reinblatt is a Freudian who basically wants you to unravel all the problems of your past life and so on and uh, to try to come to terms with that. That's the only way of uh, of somehow... You know reconciling yourself to this life but yes there's a savaging uh and i think just when the savaging gets to the point of being really savage i think there's a little bit of drawing back and that's the irony i think and maybe the humanity of the novel too i don't know
0: yeah at the zoom lawn you were asked about the the heteronormativity of the <laughs> sex and is you know, there such a word even i wonder but but anyway well, it's an interesting word <laughs> you responded with a, with a very charming smile on your face fuck that heteronormativity normativity shit writers <laughs> should be free to write what they want <laughs> could you maybe just expand on that as a credo or as a, as a uh, because that's again i, I that to a large extent, struck me as very much the voice uh, of large parts of the novel. Fuck that yes. shit. Yeah. Writers should be free to write what they want.
1: Well, yeah, I I, <laughs> I, I don't know if I, if I should have said those things, but anyway, I don't regret having said them because the 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 nature of the question was such that why am I writing only from the heterosexual point of view, and of course in our quote-unquote politically uh, correct world, we always have to be aware of uh, gender issues and so on. And um, I I think it's really beating a dead horse to some extent. I, I feel that you know, I happen to be heterosexual, so it's the only experience I can write about. I have a hard time creating a character who wasn't heterosexual, uh, and it is about heterosexual relationships. And some of it, the sex is fairly explicit, and I have no apologies in that regard. I make no apologies in that regard. Um, the other thing too is, as you well know, in my own kind of history of editing and publishing, I ran a little press called Siren Song Publishing, and a lot of the work we published was by writers who were quote-unquote edgy writers, Um, you know, including yourself, including uh, that uh, section of your story, uh, Red-Haired Raphael. Um, And uh, I I make no apologies for that kind of edginess because it is a reality. Sexuality is a reality. we can be heterosexual and not have to apologize for it. I can have a quote unquote male voice and not have to apologize for it. When I think back on the whole literary tradition, I think, uh, I mean, it goes much further back than that, but I think in the 20th century, particularly, uh, the voice of someone like Henry Miller, and then later on, uh, Mark Safranco and uh, Dan Fonte and Tony O'Neill and yourself and others, they're voices who write very what we call edgy things in society Um, and this edginess is to some extent reality and to a large extent it's truth so that's why I don't think we really need to apologize for that and I think the Stephen voice and I think my own voice certainly I think attest to that.
0: Yeah, I, I, I want to talk to you about some of those uh, literary bad boys in a minute. I, ho- I don't really include myself as a literary bad boy, but perhaps I am, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> and not to single anybody out. People can, as people are free to write what they want, people are free to ask whatever questions they want. But that kind of question is an expected question, isn't it? It's what we're expected to ask in order to show our sort of literary bona fides now, that um, we're not actually going to talk about the writing as writing. We'll talk about, as you call it, political correctness or a kind of political overlay to, to everything. And I, I wonder how much that that contributes to that sense of the f- sort of futility of literature and writing disappearing beneath the waves. Well, I,
1: it's it's really very true. And um, I, I think something that can attest to that is just the very fact when I was trying to get this book published, I went to different publishers that I knew, Some of a few of them I knew personally. Um, and uh, there was always a kind of caveat as to why they wouldn't take it. And uh, one of the caveats, which was the most interesting, was a publisher I really admire in England. I you know won't say their name at this particular point, but I uh, sent him uh, my novel on the recommendation of one of their writers who they had published, who happens to be a woman writer, who is absolutely terrific. And I got back a very sort of terse uh, little note from him, saying that we are only publishing women writers at this point because women writers have been basically underrepresented. And so I said, well, if that happens to be the kind of uh, qualification for what they want to publish and what makes quote unquote good literature. I'm not sure I really wanna be part of that publishing house because it should be genderless in that respect. Uh, good writing is good writing and it doesn't have to be male, female, heterosexual, heteronormative, homosexual, whatever the case may be. So yes, that's uh, that's very much an issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Good writing is good writing. I, yeah. I, I wanna just um, move to the, the sort of the emotional contour of, of um, Icarus, um, as you've already said, there, there are a multitude of, of sexual encounters and uh, what one might call escapades, and even and then deep emotional encounters in the novel. Some some deep loves, making love with a woman who's who's dying of cancer, being one of them. But yes. it, it seems to me too that. One of the greatest loves is for Montreal itself, for the city yes. itself. Um, yes. And, and more than just as a city and a landscape, a, a setting and a place, it, it's a, far more akin to, 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 um, to Dublin for, for Joyce. It's, it's, hmm. it's this understanding of how life actually intersects with itself, how, how, it, how hmm. things go on. Um, there's a wonderful quote um, on page, I just have to look it up quickly, sorry, on yeah, chapter 6, page 33. Um, All the clichés of an early Montreal spring surround me, the budding leaves on the trees covering the mountain, the blue sky with lazy clouds, the lovers strolling along the paths. I take a long walk over the mountain and emerge near Parc-Jean-Mence, the old Fletcher's field of Richler's, Richler's stories. I walk up Park Avenue to San Viettel, passing the building where I lived as a student across from the KFC, where I first met Elizabeth during my student days. Even just the almost necessity of um, a kind of genuflect to Richler, <clears throat> um, because that is, how can you go through that area without thinking of Doody Kravitz, right? Yes. <laughs> without thinking of St. Urban's Horseman. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, Montreal is more than just a setting and a place in the the novel, isn't it? It is a character. Yes, yes.
1: Uh, And for me particularly as a person and then later on as a writer, although I don't know if we should separate the two things, um, I came to Montreal when I was 21 years old and it completely opened up a totally different world for me i had lived in europe before that so i knew a little bit about the european experience but the montreal experience was truly unique Um, and part of it had to do with the fact that i because that part of the novel also deals with the issue of exile too obviously exile from your homeland exile from your spiritual self and all that kind of stuff um but 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 for me the, the thing about Montreal was that, first of all, it's a very beautiful city. Uh, second of all, it was very alien to me because it was French culture. And at that time, I spoke no French at all when I arrived in Montreal and had a hard time adjusting and, and acclimatizing until I finally could. Um, but but the, the walking through the parts of Montreal are so much a part of who Stephen is um, and and how he sees the world and it precipitates all these memories his memories as a student his memory meeting Elizabeth his memory uh uh going up to an artist studio and all that and it, you're not the first person to say that because a lot of people who have read the book said It's really amazing because I I follow these walks in Montreal, I know the places you're talking about, and obviously they speak to you, And, and Montreal, as a character, has spoken to me. And as you said, when you walk to Fletcher's Field, you can't but help think of uh, the Apprenticeship of Dudy Kravitz and Mordecai Richler and and all the other places and going into Benz and so on too and one time seeing Leonard Cohen there. It's um, Montreal is very much of a mythical city and uh, this kind of myth became a part of my life and is still a part of my life, uh, although less so now that we don't walk around as much. But uh, But yes, you're absolutely right. Montreal is a character and I think I meant it to be a character.
0: Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, uh, I was struck by a sensibility very akin to to Joyce's uh, treatment of Dublin, or approach to Dublin, I guess. And I read somewhere that that Joyce um, actually had an elderly aunt go and make sure that you could, when you jump down uh, from the sidewalk into the the stairwell uh, Mm -hmm. at 7 Eccles Street, um, you Mm -hmm. actually could jump, you would jump far enough that you might hurt your ankle. <laughs> at, at, at the same time, I doubt that there was ever anybody named the citizen who threw a, a biscuit tin at a Jew fleeing down the street <laughs> in, in, in Ulysses, right? So it's that that's what literature does, isn't it? It grounds yeah. um, in, in the tangible uh, material reality of a place or a, 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 of, of a, the interaction between a group of people um, with that jumping off into the imag- very imagination. That Dr. Reinblatt was trying to instill order on. Um, yes. So, so you use Montreal that way, don't you? As a, it is a landscape, but it's more than that. It's it's digging down deep into into an emotional landscape. Do you yes.
1: Yes, I, I would absolutely, and it's interesting that you bring up Joyce because obviously Joyce was one of my heroes from the time I was 18, which was when I uh, read for, first read Portrait and then later on Ulysses, and I, I think it was Joyce who, who said that Uh, You could actually take Ulysses, and uh, if Dublin happened to fall off the face of the earth, you could recreate the city of Dublin by just simply reading through Ulysses and going to the different places that uh, he talks about and the different places traversed by Leopold Bloom. And I think I was very much influenced by Ulysses when I uh, wrote the book, just simply in terms of well, in Ulysses you get the wandering Jew, but in this one you get the, the wandering, uh, you know, artist wannabe or the wandering former suicide or whatever the case may be. Uh, and uh, it, it becomes a kind of very poignant trip, not just through the recognizable streets, but for the narrator, very much a kind of poignant trip into his psychic landscape and into trying to find the meaning that imbued his life and also the fact that going back to the theme of exile uh, coming into this marvelous new city which to me even after 40 years still seems a little bit alien and I don't think anyone who is outside of the culture of Montreal which is the French culture no matter how good your French is you'll always feel a little bit in exile. And I felt that so much in my life, first of all, leaving Hungary as a child and going to the United States, then going from the United States back to Europe, and then coming back to the United States, and then from the United States during Vietnam, coming to uh, Canada, and particularly Montreal. So yes, it's Montreal, and yes, Montreal has a character, and yes, the landscape is the literal landscape of Montreal, but it's much more the mythological and the psychological landscape.
0: Mm-hmm. You uh, you taught literature uh, for for many years, as you say, at, at both the, the junior college, the CEGEP and university uh, level at, at uh, Marianopolis and, and Concordia. Looking back, did you teach literature as a writer sees it? Because you are, uh, I, I know this from personal experience, you, you are always trying to direct your, your students to, uh, not away from the canon, not to disparage the canon, but towards other co- types of writing that, that mm-hmm. they could find just as interesting and just as rewarding. So did you teach literature as a writer sees it, or did you come to writing through the kind of door of, of, uh, of literary study?
1: Uh, That's really interesting because when I first started uh, teaching, I had just finished my PhD and I, I was kind of all set on being an academic. I used to go to conferences and present papers and so on. So I approached it from a scholarly point of view. And then as I started teaching at the college level, which is younger kids who are not necessarily going to be literary scholars, I had to shift my emphasis. And uh, first of all, I taught the traditional survey courses, uh, you know, from Beowulf to uh, whatever it is to the 18th century and then from the 18th century to the 20th century. But then I started designing these other courses. I taught a course called the Beat Generation. I taught a course called uh, Contemporary American Literature. And then I started uh, doing this course on the so-called underground writing. And as you said, I started presenting writers who i had published at that time through siren song writers i had come into commun- communication with through uh, my own writing by that time i had started writing again because i spent about 20 years like just doing more academic writing and then i started writing short stories again so i had spent 20 years of teaching before i even attempted a short story i think uh, i'd written a few poems but this was my real attempt at short fiction and as I was doing this one of the pleasures I found was being able to bring in writers that I had myself either edited or published or tried to promote and you of course were one of them and bringing them into the classroom and seeing the great response that my students had to real life writers, that it wasn't just a printed page, that it was the whole human experience that is included in literature. So it became more than the study of literature. It became a study of what is human in us. And I think Icarus is something that tries to explore that and tries to pick that apart.
0: Mm. Now, as you mentioned, you you have been, you are active in uh, in so small press literary life. Uh, you, you uh, up front and center, uh, uh, gave an enormous amount of help there. You su- you've supported many, many writers over the years in terms of getting, the- getting their work published. Um, some might see that, that aspiration to literary publishing as a rejection, oh, in a way, of the writers that you that you admire—Bukowski, Burroughs, uh, the Beats, uh, others that you've mentioned—they're they're kind of the posters on the post office wall of literary bad boys. Um, <laughs> but so, how did you juggle the the plates without them crashing to the floor? Of aspiring to to literary publication, making sure that work was getting out there, um, but at the same time having this deep affection and need to get in front of students and others, the, the work uh, that, that's, that's really off the curve. Uh, it's not popular. Um, or did you ever feel that you were juggling plates doing that? Oh yes, for, for sure.
1: Um, and I think I was very fortunate in that respect that I was teaching at a place like Marianopolis College, because Marianapolis College gave me the freedom to really teach anything that I wanted. Had I been in a more traditional institution, I would have had to probably just go by the book and teach the survey courses and teach the, you know, the, the, the canon, as it were. But Marianopolis, and I have to really commend the, uh, the sisters of the Congregation de Notre Dame, who I think were just terrific in this respect, they knew I was doing bad boy stuff and they trusted me and they let me go ahead and do it. And never was there any kind of feedback or questioning. They believed in the integrity of what I was doing, maybe because they knew me as a person. And I think they believed in the fact I would do something that ultimately would be of interest and perhaps even to the benefit of my students. Now, getting back to your question about juggling the different plates and all that. um, I I think there's sort of two aspects to my personality. uh, And and one is that uh, I have a scholarly bent and the other one is that I have the so-called bad boy bent, if you like, and all that, but, but the scholarly part of me, I always try to, even in, the, in my wildest courses at, uh, what, that I taught at the college level, even there I always try to include a traditional work so that we could use that as the stepping off point and use it as a point of contrast and let the students decide what really spoke to them. And interestingly enough, when I published that first book, which actually brought our kind of friendship together, which was Writing at the Edge, my students read it and they were completely blown away by the material in there. And and they felt that there was one girl I recall who said to me, I've never read a book in my life, but this book I've read through and through and I read it again and again and it speaks to me and as I became maybe more wild and erratic in my own teaching a lot of it centered around what I thought was speak somehow to the students in a kind of profound way mm-hmm. so yes the the juggling happened with maybe some plates which were the plates of the traditional canon breaking and shattering and then what was left behind was maybe the wilder and edgier writing that I came to hold as the best. Although interestingly enough, um, Icarus I don't consider to be really a particularly edgy work because I mean it has a lot of literary references and allusions and I've sent it to some of my kind of edgier writer's friends and um, I've had very little feedback from them. Maybe they think I've sold out, <laughs> but so be it if that's the case.
0: Yeah, it is a more formal uh, novel in a way, uh, despite the, its despair. You know, it's, it's kicking against the pricks, of, uh, as I mentioned earlier. But it is a more formal novel, and it does delve into questions that are, say, more... I guess, literary in whatever that word means than, say, the, the orderly in the uh, in character in The uh, Dance of the Seven Dwarfs in, in some of the short stories <laughs> where, where, you know, uh, there's a certain uh, scatological uh, bent to, to some of the writing. Of course, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, in, in a review I, I came across that you did of a, of a Keith Henderson short story collection, from yes. 2018, you were reviewing. It's it's the Pagan n- Nuptials of Julia, for yes. the blog Montreal M- uh, Rampage. And yeah. You you write um, Henderson's vision in these stories. You you actually dismiss one guy that I think you're supposed to be reviewing, and you just toss him off and, <laughs> uh, and get to the point, But which is not a bad thing to do. But um, you, you write, Henderson's vision of these stories reflects the loss of value in our postmodern world, a world of quotidian material concerns and empty longings. Gone are the grand themes of art from our lives, he suggests, and we are much the poorer for this. Mm. And the headline of the review is um, Why Good Writing Matters. And I guess the, my, my question really would be, does it, and if so, why? In a world where it doesn't seem to, in a, and in a world where a character like Stephen is torn, in, in engaging, some would say indulging, literary pursuits, does good writing matter, and why?
1: Well, that, that's that's very interesting, because the context of that review actually came after an afternoon that I spent in Keith Henderson's company. We were sitting in Café Shaika on uh, Sherbrooke Street, Sherbrooke and Marseille and one of my favorite cafes, and we were talking about, uh, well, my forthcoming novel, and then we were talking also about a book that he had published, which was uh, called uh, Sasquatch and the Green Sash, which was a kind of retelling of the Sir Gawain and the Green Knight story from a kind of Canadian, uh, native uh, Canadian perspective. And it's a very fascinating book that Keith wrote. And when he was talking about it, he told me how much Gawain and the Green Knight And that whole kind of search for spirituality through sexuality really spoke to his students, even though they didn't understand maybe the Christian context and and so on. Um, And he felt that great literature transcended the ages and it transcended, it basically connected people to the human experience because the human experience was universal. So good writing. Uh, Keith's collection of stories are completely different from mine. But I think it's really good writing because he deals with hu- human issues from a perspective that is certainly not my own perspective, but still a perspective which I admire and which I hold as very dear and very precious. And the the, the point is, and it goes back to that heteronormative question that, I, that we spoke about beforehand, is that, you can't really say throw out the baby with the bathwater this doesn't cater to the definition of being edgy writing or whatever the case may it may be good writing is ultimately good writing and i read a variety of writers uh, many of them uh, you know the traditional canon and some very Newer, edgier writers, and I find that as long as they speak to the human experience and 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 we recognize somehow ourselves in it, either accidentally or deliberately, it does matter.
0: I, I guess I'm I'm interested though in sort of writing as writing versus as other forms of communication. One of the things I've been saying for years is that Breaking Bad was. The great novel of the earliest early part of the 21st century, um, for in, sure, in terms of the, the no- novelistic arc that it followed. Um, but it was obviously it was not writing. It, I mean, things had to be written clearly, uh, scripts had to be written, and so on. But the writing wasn't text on paper that that we absorb with our eyes. It was just a very very different medium. But it still followed the, a very traditional novelistic arc. Yes. Are, have we? Are we, are we post-text, though? Do we have to acknowledge that polished writing is going to give way to great novels like Breaking Bad?
1: That's that's a really, I think, tough, tough question, because certainly we seem to have drifted in that direction. But as you said, the writing in Breaking Bad is absolutely terrific. There is a traditional plot line that's being followed. He becomes an almost kind of Lear type of character at the very end. So we recognize that. But in terms of, I think the question that you're asking is, are we leaving behind writing. I think the sad answer to that is maybe yes. Uh, And I say that in a kind of qualified way, because I think people don't read anymore, and I think the experience of reading, which is just sitting down with a book, as you and I well know, and becoming completely immersed and engaged by that world or with that world, uh, is something that people have lost, particularly through the medium of television, Netflix, etc., where it's much easier. And I know in my own case, it's much easier to do that, too, especially during the pandemic. It's much easier to flick on Netflix instead of sitting down and trying to engage with a book. So are we losing it? I'm afraid to a large extent we are. Do we need to do anything about it? I think we do, and part of it has to do with the kind of writing that people are looking at. Um, I'm thinking of people like uh, contemporary writers like Barry Hanna, etc., who write in a very kind of snappy fashion that's almost as if you were looking at a film script and so on um, maybe that's what's going to be happening maybe that's the direction that writing is heading all in but I somehow also feel that it can endure and it will change and for the better who's to say maybe the way that it changes will not be the way that we're used to but maybe it'll be a new, refreshing way to look at language. Mm-hmm. It's possible.
0: Last question I wanted to ask you, and let's, I'm just gonna preface it by saying, let's hope that it endures uh, long enough, and I'm sure it will for your next collection of short stories to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, is, the, is, uh, is the collection of stories uh, as you're proceeding through it, is it a follow-up to, to dance, or is it a follow-up to Icarus, or is it something entirely new?
1: Well, it's probably uh, kind of uh, closer to Icarus because it takes the same character, Stephen, except it takes Stephen back to his early youth. And it's a collection of linked stories that take Stephen from uh, being perhaps. Uh, Oh, I think, I think he's about 10 years old in the very first story, up to the time when he's actually uh, maybe about 35 or 40 years old. Um, and it doesn't exactly link to Icarus, but it deals with much more the theme of exile and the theme of a young person trying to come to terms with a world that is ultimately very cruel and vicious and uh, almost damning of his efforts at gentleness and intellectuality and so on. Um, So the, the working title I have for this collection is called The Mark of Zorro and Other Stories and part of it has to do with my own personal kind of obsession with Zorro as a child because uh, when i was a child we lived in very dire circumstances being new immigrants to the united states and all that with not very much money living in pretty much a ghetto setting so for escape uh, in the the times when we actually obtained a tv i used to spend saturday mornings watching zorro and Errol flynn movies and tarzan movies and these were all my heroes and so it deals it starts off with the notion of a boy who's watching zorro and and the stories that he sees unfolding in Zorro are interspersed with the actual tragedy of his own life. And it keeps going back and forth between the two. And I think the stories kind of unfold in that particular way. Uh, to the last one, uh, last story, which is called My Brother's Keeper, which is a kind of testament to uh, the narrator's brother, who was a real wild and woolly Uh, Eastern European Hungarian character and that is also interspersed with the repressed feelings of the narrator and the wild over the top feelings of the brother as he watches him. Live his life and to finally die. So uh, exile, um, coming to terms with uh, loss—all uh, these things are in there. And I think there's also a kind of—I hope, at any rate—a kind of wicked humor in that collection, which is also apparent in some of my other writing.
0: Fantastic! Thank you so much, Walter. Really, really appreciate the time, uh, and uh, and just incredible, uh, incredible thoughts that you've offered about about language, about words, and and about how words work in in literature but also in our lives I'm Peter Stockland I've been speaking with Montreal writer Zolt Alippi I hope you've enjoyed listening and that you'll join us for the next edition of Wordwork